Help us to mean it with our hearts. Enliven our spirit that we can love you even more in this house today. For we are with you in this place. Your word says that where we gather in the name of Jesus, you are present. Not just some idea of you, Lord. And not just us thinking about you, but you are here. So we thank you for the blessing of being with you. Last week, we began looking at the incarnational life, the last of the six streams of spiritual formation. Incarnation, of course, meaning to take on flesh, referring to how God in Christ became one of us, fully human. And therefore, Scripture says he understands what it means to hunger and thirst. He understands what it means to long for something or to suffer. He understands what we're going through. He identifies with us. The incarnational life is where the spiritual and the material come together. How God connects with our lives through the physical world. And as mentioned last week, it's done primarily in these two arenas, the religious and the everyday. And last week we looked at the religious arena seen largely through worship. Because in true worship, we encounter the risen, present Lord through things like the bread and the cup. Our lives are connected with His in the waters of baptism. These are not mere symbols, but are physical acts where Christ is embodied. The spiritual and the material come together. Incarnation happens. True worship seeks to engage us not merely in mouthing words of a song, but with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. In yesterday's newspaper, there was a nice article on the Australian megachurch called Hillsong, planting churches in major cities all over the world, targeting and reaching what's considered the most difficult demographic group to reach, young adults. I know Jeff sometimes has us sing some of their music. That's probably what they're best known for. Overall, I thought it was a very positive article, but there is an occupational hazard I have. Sometimes I can be very critical when I read something that doesn't sit right. The last sentence of that article really caught my attention. Because in just six words, it captured not just the theology of worship at Hillsong, but the theology that is probably predominant today. The statement was by the founding pastor, and it simply was, worship should be be enjoyable, not endured. It sounds good. 
something most of us would probably wish for. What struck me, though, is that in 2,000 years of the church's existence, we are perhaps the first generation to, to believe that worship is primarily about our pleasure rather than God's pleasure. Worship can be joyous. In Psalms 42, David says how he remembered how he used to lead the procession to the house of God with shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive throng. But some, it's also said, the Lord is in his holy temple, so let all the earth be silent. Sometimes worship is subdued. Sometimes worship can be troubling, as found out, Isaiah found out. In Isaiah 6, as he's worshiping in the temple, he has a vision of God high and lifted up, and his response was, Woe is me, for I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. The point is, when God shows up, we don't know what's going to happen. And so what we bring to worship is more important than what we get by it. The meaning of the word worship simply means to declare the worth of God. It's about him, not us. And we need to be more concerned with his pleasure than our own, for the two are not the same. And when it's forgotten, worship can become little more than a show, a form of entertainment, rather than that divine human encounter. For that encounter to happen, it may well need more than our ears it may require all of our senses. Historically, it was also through the frescoes on the ceilings and the walls in the great cathedrals and the statues in the courtyards and the paintings on the walls, the stained glass windows. Art has been an important part of worship from the very start, which brings us to the last piece of our art, which Darren made. So I'm going to ask Darren if you could share your inspiration for yours. Good morning. <coughs> so a long time ago, it seems like it was a long time ago, Charlene Ho approached me in the way that she does. <laughs> Take that how you want. And she asked me to do something for the church. And at the time, I said, yeah, yeah, sure, okay, just let me know. And then she did. And she came back with a paper of verses. And she said, pick one. So I looked at the verses. And I said, you know, I, I don't really have a preference are other people doing this? And she said, yes. I said, you know what? Let them all pick first, and I'll take what's left over. <laughs> and then I got the verse that was left over, and I went, oh, boy, maybe I shouldn't have left it to chance like that. But, you know, that's what, that's what I got, and then I forgot about it. And um, months later, I think, she called me, and she goes, hey, so how's that project going? And I went, project? <laughs> oh, yeah, that project. And then I went, oh, no. What am I going to do? Because they started to come up already, and it's very intimidating seeing these pieces come up, right? So that night, I happened to see Jeff, and we just had a very casual conversation, and I asked him what he thought the incarnational life was, and he said, well, of course, it's Jesus, so you should incorporate all of those things, but you should go way out there. So initially, I thought, okay, cross and, you know, cross and, and um, crown of thorns and things like that, but um, as, I, as I prayed about it, I thought more that I really should just do what I felt like I should do. So that's, that's what, what came out. So here's how it goes. Um, at that time that I was thinking about it, there was a lot going on with the busy family, um, juggling hobbies and work and 
the feeling that, um, and I, I wrote it like this, got to do everything with no real direction and not enough time. You know, that, that paralyzing kind of, kind of feeling. And that was going on while this project was coming. So um, Matthew 25, 14 through 30 kept coming up as I was praying. That's the, the parable of the talents um, where basically you, you got to use what you have. Don't hide it. So I started looking around, literally looking around my house for material and things that I had. And that's, that's what it was. So the hula hoop um, comes to represent my life as a comfort circle. So it's all the things that are familiar, and it's all the things that I, that I kind of live my life within. And um, at, the, at that time, too, there, I was also kind of reading bits of walk across the room, and the first thing is to take that first step outside of your comfort zone. So when I thought about that, I thought, wow, Jesus took the ultimate step outside of the comfort zone, out of heaven, to come here to be with me. You know? So, so that, that really started to stick there. Um, the string was the only color of yarn that we had in the house. And I started to just kind of toy around with it. It did not intend to be a dream weaver, dream catcher, whatever people were thinking it symbolized. It was actually me thinking about all the little tasks and relationships that I had to take care of in my comfort circle. And when you look at it, it's just this tangle where things cross and intersect and get all kind of disorganized. And yet, within all of that, Jesus knows it all, right? And he, and he, can, he can make order out of that, that craziness. So I put all that together, and I couldn't see the string when I hung it up against the wall, so I needed a backdrop. So I looked around the house, and I found some red fabric, which was Cody's leftover ninja costume from years ago. <laughs> and I stuck it on the back, and I glued it on there. And while I was doing that, I had the thought that it's, it's blood that Jesus spilled for me, but it's not a drop. It's a pool. And as I was doing that, I had that very profound realization that he covered my whole comfort circle and all of my string that's all tangled up. He's, he took care of it. Uh, then I had to figure out a way to get the words on there, and I looked around, and there was plexiglass from another project that was sitting in the garage. And I started to scratch at it with, um, with a Dremel drill. And as I was doing that, the thought came that I can't hide all of the nicks and cuts and scratches that I, that I did while I was making it. And with Jesus in my life, he sees it all. And I can't hide those gouges and imperfections. And he sees right through it all, and it's still okay. And um, lastly, the footprints with the walk across the room and all that. Um, I actually stepped in paint. And I stepped on the plexiglass and then stretched out the paint. So that's my feet. Because it, it had to really be me, right? My, my body. So... Um, Initially, I put both of the feet in the circle, and then I thought, no, that's just me kind of staying where I am, so I put one outside the circle. You can't really see it. It's up on the top there, Um, but I put it outside because I don't know where it's going to go, and um, if I put something behind it, it, I guess it kind of gave me the sense that I knew what I was doing, and I really don't, so stepping outside, we have to really trust Jesus to, you know, to make sure that we step someplace solid in, and in the direction that he wants us to go. So um, one way that I connect with God is through building things like that. And I didn't realize that that's one of the things I enjoy doing. And he really revealed a lot through each of those pieces in very surprising places. Um, and I guess I want to very, very openly share with you that even when I feel like I'm of low value, 
like the, the inexpensive material or leftover or damaged, God repurposes me. So uh, the, the verse is John 20, verse 21. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. So there you go. Thank you. Thank you, Darren. And again, we thank all of those who had a part. That was a great idea, Charlene, to get people involved. And then I think we all benefited, not just by the site, but hearing the story behind it. So we thank you. And it is interesting. We connect to God in many ways. There's a word which often is associated with tradition, dryness, dull, formal, but it's because we don't understand it. It's the word liturgy. As physical beings, the only way we can express our worship is through material forms and structures. That's all liturgy means, whatever form it takes. The word is often translated service. The Greek word simply means the work of the people. It refers to what we do to glorify and encounter God. It may be through songs, through prayers. It may involve the use of incense and candles or religious icons, artwork, dance, the use of spiritual gifts, drums and tambourines, so many ways in which, through physical means, we glorify and encounter God. There's tremendous variety which can sometimes seem strange to us when it's outside of our own faith tradition. But these are all means through which God connects. Christ becomes presence in our life because ultimately that's what worship is all about. Not our likes and dislikes, but connecting with God. So whether it's through the formal structure of the Catholic Church or the silence of a Quaker meeting or the spontaneous outbursts of Pentecostals or an order of service like we print up every week, all of those are liturgy. These are what one writer describes as physical and material forms that can be effective signs that help the worshiping soul apprehend spiritual reality. Our worship becomes a magnificent all-encompassing aesthetic experience. We see, we smell, we touch, we taste, we hear. We absorb the faith by reliving the gospel and the passion of the liturgy. In short, God is manifest to us through material means. The sacraments most completely demonstrate God's use of matter to make present and visible the invisible realm of the Spirit. And they are, in fact, often called visible means of an invisible grace, concrete actions by which we are marked and fed in such a way that the reality of God becomes embedded in our body, our mind, our spirit. God takes on flesh in Christ. So why should it seem strange that some of us might connect best through him, with him through worship that engages not just our hearing, but the other senses as well? Art and increasingly visual media are used to engage our sight. Music and preaching are used to engage our hearing. Incense, scent and candles engage our smell. The Lord's Supper, our taste. 
touch has been used in a variety of ways, such as laying on of hands and anointing with oil. God gives us five senses through which we can connect with him. That's the religious arena of the incarnational life. Today we move on to the second arena, the everyday arena, which is primarily where the incarnation is lived out. In what's been called the sacrament of the present moment, the incarnational life is most fully played out as it seeks to connect with God in everyday existence. Because as I quoted last week, the poet said, the world is charged with the grandeur of God and Christ plays in 10,000 places. Our lives are one of those places. The verse Darren based his art on is part of a larger passage that occurred on that first Easter. News of Jesus' resurrection and appearances were beginning to circulate, creating more than a little confusion and uncertainty. No one knew what it all meant. On top of that, there was a great deal of fear among his followers because they had just crucified Jesus. What would stop them from being next? So they gathered behind locked doors in the upper room, but their fear and confusion couldn't keep Jesus locked out. The passage begins in verse 19 of John 20, which says, On the evening of that first day of the week, Resurrection Day, When the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. His first order of business was to calm their hearts. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And in showing them the scars, he was not only identifying himself, he was showing them the price of salvation that it was fully paid. Because as Isaiah said, by his stripes we are healed. Peace is available with God. He died and arose and now he lives forever. Our fears and our confusion cannot lock him out. Peace be with you, he said. His first peace was to quiet their hearts and relieve their fears. His second word of peace was to prepare them for their commission. There was work for them to do. And that work was not simply to gather together once or twice a week for religious observances. So he said, again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. John's version of the Great Commission. And if you look into it, it's really more encompassing and demanding than the one in Matthew that we usually quote to go and make disciples of all nations. Because when he says, as the Father, it means we are to go just as he went, to do what he did, to continue the work that he started. Our lives are no longer separate, but a continuation of the work and the life of Christ. We continue to flesh out the gospel and the presence of God in the world. Incarnation that we don't do it on our own or rely on our own ability and strength. We now have access to the same resources he had. The same spirit that led and empowered him seeks to enflesh us because it says, and with that he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And we know that we continue his work because what he then says we are to do is the same thing he did, the basis for his scars. 
He came to make peace with God possible through the forgiveness of sins. And now he says, if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. But if you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul said, God commits to us. He assigns to us that message of reconciliation. The message of how forgiveness is available. And we become Christ's ambassadors, he said, through whom God makes his appeal. That whole passage is about embodying our faith and fleshing the gospel, not just here, but outside the doors, in the world, at school, at work, in our homes, our neighborhoods, the store, restaurants, Aloha Stadium, wherever we go. You know, last week, Actually, it's been two or three weeks. Craig first shared with me a quote he recently heard, which is really right on. It's simply that it said there are five Gospels in the Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and you. And that the only sighting of Jesus that most people will ever see, they will see in you or not at all. Tremendous truth there. I read an interview with a pastor of a rapidly growing new church back in Michigan. They were growing by leaps and bounds. By the end of the first year, they were drawing 4,000 people every week. Their parking and their seating couldn't keep up with it all. Problems began to, to show themselves first in the parking lot as people started losing their tempers because they had to wait so long to exit. He started hearing stories of how harsh words were being exchanged by people, and people were then giving each other the finger in the parking lot of the church. And that was right after they had been in worship in the presence of God. He knew something had to be done, so he stood up in front of the church on Sunday and said, if you're here and you are not a Christian, we're thrilled to have you in our midst. We want you to feel right at home. But if you're here and you're a Christian and you can't even be a Christian in the parking lot, please do not go out into the world and tell people you are a Christian. You'll screw it up for the rest of us. And by the way, we could use your seat. (laughs) And he said in the interview, at that point, people actually started cheering in the church. In spite of the debates and the books and the movies and the concerts and all the various ways the Gospels promoted, we remain the greatest advertisement for or against Christ. In us, people see whether he's real and alive or whether it's just our words. Richard Foster said, the religious dimension of the incarnational life is the beginning. Worshiping God is only the beginning, not the end. We are to take and incorporate it into all we are and all we do. We bring it into daily life, into our homes, into our work, into our relationships with children and spouse and friends and neighbors and, yes, even enemies. Here we come to the most fundamental arena for the incarnational tradition, the arena of everyday life. It's the place par excellence in which we make visible and manifest the invisible realm of the Spirit, The majority of Jesus' own life and of ours is found in our families and homes, in our work and play, among our neighbors and in our everyday surroundings. This tangible world is the place we most fully express the meaning of incarnational living. 
This is where we experience the outflow of love, joy, peace, and all the fruit of the Spirit. Here and nowhere else, it was true for Jesus, it is true for us, and this is the incarnational tradition. What it means in is a practical way is that people need to see and encounter Jesus Christ in our marriages, how we are treating our spouses. Peter goes so far as to link how we treat our spouse with the state of our own spiritual life when he wrote in 1 Peter 3, 7, in the same way you husbands must give honor to your wives, treat your wife with understanding as you live together. She may be weaker than you are, but she is your equal partner in God's gift of new life. Treat her as you should so that your prayers will not be hindered. Christ needs to be embodied by parents in how we raise our children. Paul said in Colossians, fathers, do not exasperate your children or they become discouraged. In Ephesians, he says, don't embitter them. Children are to reflect Christ with their parents being told to honor their mother and father. And though it may be the most difficult place at times, Christianity really needs to begin in the home. It needs to be shown in how we respect each other and listen to each other and value each other. If we cannot embody Christ where we live and show He's real there, where can we? We're also to incarnate Christ in our workplaces and school. We need to recapture the biblical understanding of vocation. We are all called to serve and embody Christ in our world, in the things we do, in the jobs we have. Whether it's at school or the doctor's office or the shipyard or the office building, people desperately need to see the reality of God made visible. Paul said, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as if working for the Lord, not men. Martin Luther said, God milks the cows through you. Christ is to become incarnate in our homes, in our work, but also through us in the world at large, in our culture and society. And one, one writer on this, to quote one writer on this cultural mandate, he said, we work to lift our culture, not just through the common sense moral standards of decency and honesty, but through art and literature, and drama, and justice, and beauty, and shalom. We nurture the good, the true, the beautiful throughout society, through the person-centered caring of the schools we run, through the beauty of the parks we build, through the entrepreneur empowerment we offer the poor, through the imaginative and redeeming literature we write, through the ecological sensitivity we bring to land use and development, and so much more. Jesus said, let your light so shine before the world that they see our good deeds and they glorify our Father in heaven because they know where it comes from. In the incarnational God life, as we encounter God in worship, we embody him in the world where the religious arena and the arena of everyday life come together. Now, Back in 1989, a youth ministry in a church in Holland, Michigan started wearing those bracelets, WWJD. What would Jesus do? Their desire was not to start a new fad, which they certainly did, but it was an effort to become more aware of Jesus in their daily lives as they made decisions. In essence, what they were trying to do is incarnate, to flesh out their faith. 
It's caught on and it's spread beyond their imagining. Their intent was good, but as strange as it may sound, in some ways, I'm very glad that fad has ended, or at least is tapered down. I say that because as it spread, it started trivializing incarnation. Even though, for some, they meant it simply to be humorous, it began turning something very significant into something petty and commercial. So, what would Jesus do? Bracelets became more than bracelets. It became, and would you click on that? A movie. What would Jesus buy? A 2007 movie. What would Jesus wear? Dress-up set for kids. What would Jesus brew? Mugs and shirts. Even a group in Allendale, Michigan started a What Would Jesus Brew group in their church. What would Jesus drive campaigns? What would Jesus eat? An ultimate program for eating well, feeling great and living longer with its accompanying cookbook. And most disgusting for me, what would Jesus shoot? A whole group of churches in Kentucky, Holly's home, was holding raffles to give away handguns in church. In Oklahoma, it was a raffle for giving away assault rifles. I'm not speaking against the Second Amendment right to bear arms. Rather, if we're not careful in our desire to fit in with the world, we can take the gospel and Jesus himself and rather incarnate him, we make it trivial. A slave to our culture by such things. We're called to share and live out the gospel, not advertise products. And rather than get caught up in such trivialities, it would be much wiser to return to the original message that that, me- that question was based on. What would Jesus do? It came from a book written in 19, or 1897 by Charles Sheldon. He was a pastor in Topeka, Kansas, who was baffled by Christians who would sing about Jesus but not act like him. So he wrote this book, and he read it first place ever in his church on Sundays. The basic premise was what difference would it make if before making a decision or taking a certain course of action, if God's people started asking simply, what would Jesus do in their situation? And then not just ask the question, but resolve to do it. What impact would it make on their lives, on our lives and our world, if we started to walk in his steps? And that's the name of the book, In His Steps. Embodying the gospel. Jesus had told his followers it was for their good that he was going away. And then he said his plan was that now they would carry on his work. We would carry on his work. Because we are the body of Christ. We partake in his body which is broken for us. And then he says, as the Father sent me, Now I'm sending you. To quote Philip Yancey, Jesus left few traces of himself on earth. He wrote no books or even pamphlets. A wanderer, he left no home or even belongings that could be enshrined in a museum. He did not marry, settle down, and begin a dynasty. We would, in fact, know nothing about him except for the traces he left in human beings. That was his design. Would it be too much to say that ever since the ascension, Jesus has sought other bodies in which to begin again the life he lived on earth? 
The church serves as an extension of the incarnation, God's primary way of establishing presence in the world. We are after Christ, the church. And we, his people, are where God lives. The healing grace, good news message of God's love, we now are to bring to all. As the Father has sent me, now I am sending you. That's the incarnational life. It reminds us that God's not just up in heaven, but he's among us. So we have meaning, we have hope. It keeps our faith rooted in the ordinary living and daily activities, not just through religious things. It gives greater meaning to our relationships, our marriages, our families, our friendships. It gives meaning to our work as a way of expressing our faith and calling in the world, not just as a way to make a living, but as a holy place. And while some may be especially attuned to God through it, none of us are free. Jesus tells us, now go and live it. Incarnation. We are all called to live out the gospel. Let's pray. Father, as we close our time together, we thank you that Christ not only is up in heaven, but he seeks to indwell us, his people. And then he sends us out as the embodiment of his presence in a need-saturated world. May we be that source of hope. Because our lives are different, may the world around us be different, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Come every soul by sin.